it's what not. What is Sean it's, it's, whispering to the side? We can see you. He was just slowly I can the see laptop you. back, and I was like, <laughs> "What are you doing?" And he was like, "I want you more in shot." Two faces, Mark. Which is very sorry. You could you could always just get closer, Sean. So, yeah. Just being, um, I like I like the way you've coordinated your wardrobe today. Yeah, it is. And you're with your sofa. We, this is this is our entire <laughs> wardrobe. Just dark colors, dark tones. Twenty twenty one. You're going full golf. That's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Black. The eyeliner is just going to get bigger. Yeah. Nice. We can talk about this book. Our you know cozy Christmas wintry read. So welcome to book club, and we are talking about Murder on the Orient Express because. Uh, there are no new movies coming out <laughs> and because we were supposed to do Death on the Nile and unfortunately that's not happening and oddly Murder on the Orient Express isn't free on any streaming service you have to pay for it or find it of other means which I thought was a little bit bizarre but all right so I think I think it was available on something when it first came out but it's been okay. out for a while now so I yeah. think that initial window is just closed yeah, I mean, you can pay for it on Amazon Prime and a few other services, but it, yeah, I would, I think, it I would, no, it's like three pounds or something, but you would think it would be like on Sky or Amazon Prime or Netflix, Oh, it, it is, it is on Sky in Jan, on, in January, I think. Okay, maybe, that well, makes sense. It always feels like the sort of, um, the marketing they use with a sequel coming out to make the first or whatever movie available for free as like a push for the new release. Um, so I can see them holding off until Death and the Nile is actually coming. Yeah, but which when still is, hasn't. When is Death and the Nile coming? I think it's, it's still unannounced. Yeah, it's unannounced. Uh, it, was, I, it was meant to be the big Christmas blockbuster, but they still haven't yeah. confirmed now a new release date. Christmas blockbuster for this year? Yeah, it was meant yeah. to be. Uh, uh, but uh, they took it off. Um, I mean... Yeah, all those big budget films. I don't think, I think it's just too much money. They don't want to lose it and put it on streaming, I guess. Mm. Which There'll be no cinemas left them to put it in, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're shut again. So, I mean, the cinemas are going to be shut through the holidays. Mm -hmm. I would say 100% people are going to be, aren't going to be going for Christmas. So, I normally go to the cinema for Christmas. I enjoy mm. that. So. Yeah, 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 we do too on Christmas Eve. I know it's great. Sometimes I do like a double bill on Christmas Eve. <laughs> one day, one day you'll be trying to explain this to your grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> we, we used to go to this big room and all sit together and watch the big screen. Not just on your cell phone. <laughs> watching it. It'll be the sitting together bit that will freak out the grandkids <laughs> when they're in their hazmat suits. I, am I the only person that when I see when you see two people on screen go in for like a familiar hug, I'm like, no, two meters. <laughs> oh, hang on, hang on. You're not sorry, it's, sorry, we're in Istanbul in 1913. <laughs> they, yeah. They'll be okay. So this was filmed in, the, the film that we're going to talk about was filmed in 2017. So this is the, well, no, we did, what was the, we did the Midnight Cowboy was us doing like an old film, but uh, this is more due to circumstances. And this is meant to be a Kenneth Branagh series, I guess. You know, he tackled Shakespeare. Now he's into Agatha Christie. So I guess we have to endure that. 
and <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't like it very much. We'll, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Sean is going to start us off by. Sean's going to very kindly ask Nora to do it um, because he doesn't want to butcher every single name that he cannot pronounce correctly. <laughs> Okay, I can. I guess I can read it out. Um, I'd stumble through it, but it would take us about four times <laughs> longer. So uh, this probably makes more sense. I mean, I'm going to equally butcher the names of the characters. And oh, you, also, you've, got more, uh, you've got much better accents than me, so at least you'll sound good. I'll just do a funny accent for the names and make it sound like that's what it's yeah. supposed to be. <laughs> um, I'm also... You're gonna ha- people are gonna have to check me because I am going to confuse the characters from film to book continuously. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I think we all will, unless unless Tom's like got it nailed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I think previous instalments of this podcast should uh, give you a very good indication that I will absolutely have nothing nailed. <laughs> Actually, speak up before we before you dive in, Nora. Yeah, uh, Tom, have you read the book and watched the movie? I have not. I, I watched the neither, movie. Neither, neither. <laughs> you. I watched I watched the movie yesterday, but I have watched I think three other versions of, of Murder okay. on the Orient Express. The the seventies version, the David Suisse version. And I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's another one, but yes, those are the two that immediately come to mind. Yeah. Because they did like a TV film version with him. Which the, was the Suchet, Suchet directing one. Yeah. Mm. And then the 70, I think it was 74 was the other big version, which I kind of want to see that now because people really recommend that one. It's supposed to be quite good. But I don't I know. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a classic film of its time. I don't know how well yeah. it holds up. I haven't seen it in a very long time. Yeah. So you know the story. It's important. It's not... Oh, it shouldn't, it's not supposed to be overly complicated story. Oh, there's an Alfred Molina one from CBS in 2001. Really? I like Alfred Molina. <laughs> uh, sure, Alfred Molina's great. Um, yeah, anyway. Okay, so Murder on the Orient Express, which was written by the great Agatha Christie, uh, came out in 1934. It was the 10th book in the Hercule Poirot series. I mean, it kind of feels like we're picking the most popular books in the very long-running series for these films, but all right. So Agatha Christie was the best-selling mystery writer, of, is the best-selling mystery writer of all time, apparently. And she wrote 93 books and 17 plays, including the longest-running play of modern-day theater, The Mousetrap, which you can still go to in London. She created two important detective characters, Hercule Poirot and Mrs. Marple, who both very long-running TV series based on those characters. Her first book was The Mysterious Affair of Styles, which introduced Hercule Poirot. And so the summary of the book is that just after midnight, a snowdrift stops the Orient Express in its tracks. The luxurious train is surprisingly full for the time of the year, but by the morning, it is one passenger fewer. An American tycoon lies dead in his compartment, stabbed a dozen times, his door locked, from the inside. Isolated and with a killer in their midst, Detective Hercule Poirot must identify the murderer in case he or she decides to strike again. We start off with Hercule Poirot, the private detective and retired Belgian police officer. He boards the Taurus Express train to Istanbul, which is Istanbul, uh, modern day. 
And on the train, there are two other passengers, Mary Debenham and Colonel Abernat. They appear to be strangers, though Poirot notices otherwise. He's very much, you get the vibe, he's a people person. He, he likes to people watch. He's very much notices their mannerisms. And once in Istanbul, Poirot bumps into his friend, Mr. Book, head of Wagon Lee, who, and when he's at the hotel there, he gets a telegram requesting him to immediately come to London, forcing him to take the train that night. Book and Poirot go to board the Orient Express that evening and to list off the passengers. And I also have a handy list at the end of this so we can reference back of who's who and who their alternate persona is. We get Dr. Constantine, Governess Mary Debenham, Mrs. Hubbard, Princess Dragmiroff, her maid Hildegard Schmidt, Greta Olson, American businessman Ratchet, and his secretary and translator Hector McQueen, and valet Edward Henry Masterman. Count and Countess Adrenay, Antonio Fuscali, and the conductor Pierre Michel. On, once on the train, Ratchet approaches him and asks him if he will protect him from people trying to kill him. Poirot refuses as he doesn't like his character and face, very pointedly. While sleeping that evening, Poirot notices various odd occurrences. He is awakened by the cry in Ratchet's room. He hears Mrs. Hubbard ring for the conductor, and then he rings for some water and finds out that they are stuck in a snowbank. The next morning, they discover that Ratchet has been murdered. Book convinces Poirot to investigate the case. They find that Ratchet has been stabbed 12 times to varying degrees, and they find the following clues in his room. The window has been left open, a pipe cleaner, and I don't know why, but I didn't realize the pipe cleaner was actually a pipe cleaner. Me, me. <laughs> and when you use them for crafts, when you're like a kid, <laughs> you were. I didn't, I, I mean, it makes sense, but I guess people and don't really- it in the name. Yeah. I just never clicked. Well, it wasn't hidden knowledge. They, uh, no, they tell no, you up front. No, I totally agree. I didn't know <laughs> what it actually was for. But also, who thought to use pipe cleaners as like kids' craft items? Um, pipe cleaner manufacturers, when they realized <laughs> pipes were no longer fashionable. <laughs> that is ingenious. Yeah. Whoever figured that out well, made a mint. Considering you kept the name. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, a handkerchief with the initial H, a round match, his watch that has stopped at 115, a burnt note with the name Armstrong on it. Poirot then realizes through the name on the note that Ratchet is actually Cassetti, a man who kidnapped and killed a three-year-old girl, Daisy Armstrong, three years ago. This resulted in her mother dying in a premature labor, the father committing suicide, and the falsely accused maid killing herself. I think I get that right. Poirot starts interviewing all the passengers in the cabin, the wagon lead conductor Pierre Michel, who was sitting watch through the night in the hall, Hector McQueen, Ratchet's secretary, who knew about the note, threatening notes, Masterman, Ratchet's valet, Mrs. Hubbard, a high-strung American who is visiting her daughter. She says that she saw a man come into her cabin during the middle of the night. He finds out that multiple passengers also saw a woman in a red kimono in the hall. Mrs. Hubbard at, in the evening had Greta Olsen lock the door between her and Ratchet's room and Hildegard Schmidt says she bumped into a mysterious man wearing a Wagon Lee uniform. 
He checks everyone's luggage and finds that the Wagon Lee uniform is in Hildegard's suitcase and the red kimono is in his own, though neither know how they got there. Further interviewing the passengers, he speaks to Countess Andreni and figures out that she's actually Helena Goldenberg, sister of the Sonia of Sonia Armstrong, the mother of Daisy Armstrong. And she and her husband, the Count, had tried to hide her true name. He figures out that Mary Debenham was actually Daisy's governess, Antonio Fasconelli was Armstrong's chauffeur, Masterman the valet, and Greta Olson was Daisy Armstrong's nurse. Poirot gathers all the passengers into the dining car and propounds two possible solutions. The first solution is that a stranger entered the train at Vinkovsi and killed Ratchet. The second solution is that all the passengers aboard the Orange Express were involved in the murder. He, quite different options. He, uh, he argues that the 12 of 13 passengers all close to the Armstrong case killed Ratch to avenge the murder of Daisy Armstrong. Mrs. Hubbard revealed as Linda Arden, Sonia Armstrong's mother, admits that the second solution is correct. Poirot suggests that Mr. Book and Dr. Constantine tell the police the first solution is correct to protect the family. Mr. Book and Dr. Constantine accepts Poirot's suggestion and then he walks off into the sunset. <laughs> there's a very quick summary of it. And then, you know, there's quite a long list of characters that we get a lot more details of as a reading. Like there's, I, I didn't even get to mention there's Cyrus Hardiman who was a private detective in New York that Ratchet hired to help protect him. And, but he was also in love with the nurse who committed suicide because she was falsely accused of uh, kidnapping, being involved in the kidnapping of Daisy. So everyone has like these sort of backstories of how they're involved in the kidnapping and eventual murder of Daisy and why they want to kill Ratchet. But I mean, it's kind of the James Patterson of her time, I guess. And that's not a negative thing. They're like, co it's like a cozy, nice, quick read, right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I thought it was totally fine. Yeah. I found it a bit dry. I agree with that. Yeah. And I really wanted to like it because I hear Agatha Christie and I'm like, I'm sure I would like that. And then when I started reading it, I was like, it's just a lot of long chats. <laughs> <laughs> I struggled yeah. to get through it. Like when when you read the the summary, Nora, I was like, "That sounds brilliant." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no, that's the book we've just read," and it was really <laughs> boring. <laughs> like a, a book about uh, a train getting stopped in like a snowdrift and a murder a murder happening and like the investigation that should be really exciting. Three quarters of the book. Shouldn't be some nice men sitting around chatting about who they think did it. But I thought, because I like a lot of dialogue, so I thought about why I didn't like it. And I think the reason is I don't care who killed Ratchet because I don't care about Ratchet. Like, no, he's, I've been he's given a <laughs> Yeah. So why would I read 300 pages of people talking about who killed him when I'm not really that bothered? Like, that's what I couldn't connect, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like they I didn't hate it, but I just wasn't as into it as I wanted to be. Yeah, because they introduce him as like a character that no one likes, and then they 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 reveal that he's done like the worst thing ever. But but because that's all being told to us after the fact, I've got no real investment in in that. Yeah, yeah. 
That's fair. I mean, it's a very, I think I had such high expectations for like you, Agatha Christie. I was yes. like, oh, this isn't some like intellectual feat to writing. It's very simple, easy, not high octane, not very tense. It just, it's very easy going, <laughs> crime solving. People, because I know people read mysteries because they like to be able to work them out. But yeah. I found the end so mad that yeah. you couldn't possibly work that out if you didn't. Like, the, I don't feel like you're given any clues that would lead you to the point mm. of everyone on the train being guilty. Yeah, because yeah. that's the problem, though. Like, I think Hercule Poirot as a character is like interesting, mm. but he's one of those like detectives who is making kind of leaps of logic to come to conclusions which turn out to be correct. But like, they, I've as a reader, I've got no reason to make that same leap of, leap of logic or to have any reason to suspect that to Your be the case. Knowledge of the Russian alphabet isn't that great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't let you in on his sort of process. And sometimes he dismisses things completely. It's like that definitely couldn't have happened. And then 100% think something happened, even though that seems more unlikely than the thing he's just dismissed. Um, which is like an incredibly bizarre way of doing detective work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just thought the appeal of it would be unpicking the mystery with him. Yeah. You don't really get to do that, I don't think. But unless I'm just... I, I always thought the appeal of an Agatha Christie, and, and you know, I've never read an Agatha Christie, <laughs> but I, I, I always thought the appeal of the TV shows and the movies was the, um, the, the, the denouement, the... the um, uh, getting everyone together in the mm-hmm. study yeah. where he sort of goes on this very dramatic monologue where he posits things and takes them away and then does a bit of character assassination and then comes back and, and you know, unveils everything. What was weird watching the Kenneth Branagh murder, murder on the Orient Express was he, the character seems to flip-flop between knowing what's going on intimately and being thoroughly baffled. We're not at like the movie he, yet. Oh, sorry, still talking about it. Yeah, fine. Okay, I'll come back to it. I mean, but we could talk about like Agatha Christie is just like everyone knows Poirot and Mrs. Marple. It's just like in the nexus. So we all have this idea of what it is. And then you read it and you're like, oh, it's not so great. I, um, I wasn't expecting it to be so like Sunday afternoon, like Midsummer yeah. Murders. Yeah. I thought it was good. I thought, like, and that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like, I think, but, but that, I'm at fault for, for not realising exactly what it was. I thought it was going to be much more like clue and detective led and suspenseful and kind of picking things up and piecing things together. But it's very much like a, oh, it's like, there's no way I can ever figure this out. I'm just meant to be like enjoying the kind of ride of yeah. Hercule Poirot doing his thing, which by the end, I kind of did more than at the start. I did still think it was a bit, a bit dry, as Ellie said. Um, but by the end, once I realised that okay, this is what it is, mm-hmm. I could get kind of carried away with it a bit more. But it took me a while to actually get there. Um, I know we're not there yet, but I don't think the film achieves that. Yeah, it's sort of like being on the teacup ride in a yes, amusement <laughs> park. Like it's it's you're sort of like okay takes a second to get into the pace of it and once you're in it you're like oh this is this is pleasant yeah pleasant 
Pleasant is the exact word for it. It's the most pleasant murder mystery of all time. <laughs> I mean, this is like where BBC got it. Uh, you know, I guess yeah. this is the original formula for their those midsummer murder type shows. I am. Um, I, I didn't know exactly this, but as I was going through it, I did remember there was a Hercule Poirot novel of some type where every every character was involved in the murder. And mm-hmm. I was like, is this that one? Is it the one <laughs> where everyone's involved? Um, and I think that, that spoiled it a little bit for me because I, I was yeah. about 10% in when I was like, oh, I think this is the one where they all, they've all done it. Yeah. I had no you idea. didn't know, did you? Which I think is, is yeah. good. But it wasn't even like gasp when you get to the end because it's so. Oh yeah. Like... Yeah. Oh, I, I don't. I see. I think, um, and and I might well be wrong here, but I I think what is clever about Murder on the Orient Express, at least from the perspective of someone who may have read a lot of these kind of things, the setup where you have a closed confined space, there are a certain number of suspects. And they all could have done it. And they've all got a reason to have done it. And then you get to the end and it's one of them. Mm. Yeah. But I can totally see that the reason why Murder on the Orient Express was originally this huge hit was just like, no, it was all of them. Yeah. It was actually like a mind-blowing twist. And then so, I had a discussion. We were like, if you, if you had been reading all of these Hercule Poirot novels as they came out, you get to this 10th one and all of a sudden the kind of formula or the kind of the normal playbook is thrown out the window and all of a sudden it is all of them is a really interesting twist, but I think the fact that that's kind of bubbled in the pop culture and I was kind of aware of it undermined it for me somewhat. Especially especially when the narrative of the book is like, every other chapter is like, they were directly involved with this person. It felt very much like that was the only way it could have gone. Otherwise, it's a very big coincidence if only one of them did it, but all of them were on this one train in winter <laughs> were all directly involved in this murder. I mean, as you get along in the story and you're like, wait, all of them were connected to this case? This is not a coincidence anymore. They all were there on purpose. You realize that it's, you know, it's not At least when it's like, oh, uh, the Lord's been killed in this massive mansion. Was it the butler or the chauffeur or the maid? At least there's all the reason they bloody know him and they're all there. Whereas this is like, this is a big old coincidence. What do you think of Poirot's character in the book? Is it what you imagined from having watched the David Suchet version? I've only ever seen bits and pieces of the David Suchet thing. My, my great nan used to watch it a lot when I was <laughs> really young, so I was like peripherally aware of him. But but kind of, yeah. Um, it, it's this very much like big brain detective um if you exclude everything that's impossible, it must be the thing, even if it's the most improbable thing, that Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I didn't, I quite enjoyed the, the character. Um, you can see why you'd hang books on him as a, like a series of books on him as a, as a kind of detective. Yeah, and this will come up when we talk about the movie, but he's not like a superpower detective. He's just like kind of a pe- people person in the sense like he he can sense bullshit and he can read people really well and is good. I don't know that that mustache. I think it's got superpowers. Well, it's disarming. <laughs> people are like, oh, the mustache. I think it twinges when someone lies or something. <laughs> yeah, like that. exactly. Got to be something. I, I just mean in like relation to other famous detectives, he's probably the most like socially mm. adept, I guess. 
what I like about the character is the fact that um, sometimes it feels like people come undone just because they're so aware of who he is. Like by this point, they're impressed. There's, there's characters in the, in the book who were aware of this of this man in their own universe, mm. and to the point where it feels like some people just confess things to him or say things to him because they feel like he's going to figure it out anyway. Yeah. I'm just going to like get it over and done with. Um, and that is somewhat of like a, a yeah. superpower. <laughs> and he's quite charming and he sort of, he tries to put people in settings where they're, because he makes a point of I'm putting people in settings where they would be comfortable and feel able to talk to me and hopefully reveal the secrets and things like that. He's very conscious of people's social status and ad- adapting to that as he's just talking to them. Mm. Yes, he he moved, He's able to easily, and I remember in watching the TV series, he's very. It's very easy for him to move within different social circles, which I think is very crucial to what makes him a good detective and character. So on to the film, which I know Tom is itching to discuss. <laughs> so it came out in twenty seventeen. It was direct, directed by Kenneth Branagh, who recently did Artemis Fowl as well, which was an option for us to do. Also is obviously directing Death on the Nile. Can I ask you a question, Tom, as a film person? Is Kenneth Branagh supposed to be a good director? Yes. Okay, because his the other list is Cinderella, Thor. Thor. I mean, well, he did the first one, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the the only one on his list that I, re- I really like is Much Ado About Nothing. I mean, I think Kenneth Branagh um, is very highly regarded, as I understand it, as a theatre director who has, in okay. the latter part of his career, moved into film directing. He is certainly regarded as, um, you know, a, a more than competent pair of hands. I don't. I don't think he certainly doesn't have sort of auteur status. He's not not a director. I think anyone sort of gets wildly excited about. But but certainly, I would feel you know, you know, he's going to do a reasonable job. At, at, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, he feels like a hired gun. Well, I was just, I was just, I was vaguely remembering when Sean was speaking earlier um, that there was some talk of of a, an Agatha Christie verse. That's what this is. We're entering this. We're entering the Christie verse, and at some point, <laughs> Little Miss Little Miss Marple will will appear. No. Yeah. Um, God help in the, us. in the same way that Universal was trying to do Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Werewolf. We talked about this, and it ended yeah. awfully. Thankfully, someone made you know you know something good out of that pile of shit. But well, I, I imagine the Agatha Christie movie that overlaps with Pyro is on the horizon for this as well. Uh, so it was adapted by Michael Green, who is also doing the Death on the Nile. He He's a, another interesting one because it's like he does a good movie, then a shit movie. He did Logan, Green Lantern, Blade Runner, The Call of the Wild, Alien. So it's sort of like, it's like I write a good one, then I write a bad one. Which Alien? Covenant, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, I think a lot of people had fingers in that. I'm not quite sure you can put that all at his doorstep. <laughs> so, Hidden Miss uh, writer. It is, okay, so it's going to take me but five I, I, 
I think it's I think I think the whole thing has had I think re-watching it. I mean, I've seen this film maybe three times now. Okay. Um and I'm I'm a sucker for, you know, nice period stuff that I can just put on while I watch while I eat dinner or whatever. Yeah. Um which is why I've seen it a number of times. But I think what was really apparent watching this was the structural issue it has, which is that and 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 I apologize, Tom, haven't read the book. You're skipping ahead. Wait a second. Okay, okay. So you need to give me five minutes to get through the list of actors who are in the film. <laughs> Sorry, I'm derailing the research. You go. Ahead. It's it's okay. Well, we have to try and get the names right because they decide, you know, this is a book with a lot of characters with a lot of fancy names. But no, 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 we are not satisfied. We need our own fancy names and totally different characters. Because no one else, you know, tons of people haven't read the original book, so they're not going to care. So we have Kenneth Branagh playing Hercule Poirot. Leslie Odom Jr. playing Dr. Abenot, who was originally Colonel Abenot in the book. And Leslie Odom Jr., who we all know from Hamilton. And Tom Bateman plays Monsieur Book, Daisy Ridley, Mary Debenham, Manuel Garcia Rufo plays Benanimo Marquez, who's kind of a, that's an original named character. Penelope Cruz is Pilar Estravados. Josh Gad plays Hector McQueen, Johnny Depp. And I'm going to, I'm spitting off camera saying his name like Judy Dencer's character does in the film. <laughs> because it's a very apt thing to do when talking about Johnny Depp in both the film and in real life plays Edward Ratchet Derek, Derek Jacobi plays Edward Henry Masterman Serge Polonun Count Rudolf Adrini Lucy Boynton plays Countess Elena Adrini Marwin Kenzari plays Pierre Michel Michelle Pfeiffer plays Caroline Hubbard Judy Dench plays Princess Dragomirov, Olivia Coleman, Hildegard Schmidt, and William Defoe, Gerhard Hartman. Did I get everyone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And it was produced by 20th Century Fox, Genre Films, Kinderberg, Genre, the Mark Gordon Company, Scott Free Productions, Latina Pictures, and the estate of Agatha Christie. We open in 1935, the Wailing Wall of Jeru in Jerusalem, and there's this little boy running, and he delivers the two perfectly boiled eggs, which is apparently a joke from the other Poirot books that he has for breakfast every morning, two perfect, the matching hard-boiled eggs. And the whole opening sequence in Jerusalem and there's this crime that he's solving where it's a rabbi, priest, and an iman, and they make the really dumb joke about walking into a bar, and there's this stolen relic, and it wasn't any of them, it was the officer. And you're kind of introduced to Braddock's interpretation of Poirot as a character, which kind of set me on the wrong foot, I think, in this, in that it was sort of a, a amalgamation of Sherlock Holmes and I don't know if you ever watched the TV series Monk. I've seen Monk, yeah. Yeah. I've seen I have actually seen all of Monk. Okay. I like Monk. Monk was great, but I'm sort of like that's not Poirot. <laughs> to me. It's a blessing anyway. and a curse. But it it was just it kept flipping back and forth and being like he's, you know, is he socially awkward? You know, does he have 
is he like have obsessive compulsive and all these like weird nervous tics and things which didn't really make sense to me in being such an iconic character I don't know if you noticed that in the beginning yeah I mean they they set up kind of idiosyncratic things like the, the eggs the kind of he did a weird thing when he walked in shit. shit yeah, twice. It has to be matching. Matching, matching, like the balancing, which he brings up again later. I, 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 thought, I thought this opening was unnecessary, but yeah. I quite liked it. Like, in terms of like what it did, I didn't, I didn't hate it. Um, I thought it was bizarre that we did it. We had like this huge CGI opening shot of this, of this gorgeous city and this him wrapping up another case. Um, <laughs> it felt weirdly like James Bondy, like you know, yeah. in a Bond movie with him finishing one caper before he begins the new caper. Yeah, yeah. that's a that, no, that's a good assessment. It it feels like very expensive, unnecessarily expensive. And I I I, I don't know if I loved or hated the bit with his cane in the wall. So that when the guy runs away and then runs, oh yeah, the armed armed officer, yeah, yeah, and knocks himself out because Hercule knows that many steps ahead what the guy's going to do because he's Sherlock Holmes, essentially, yeah, but without the fun drag habit. But that's what I mean. Like when I was talking about the character in the book, he's just like a very socially adept and aware man. He's not socially fucked up man. that he like sees he has this grand map in his that he can see everyone's behaviors you know 10 steps ahead but it's one of the it's one of those characters isn't it that everyone who plays him has to put has to try and put their own spin on him yeah um because otherwise why are you bothering but they're obviously within certain parameters and the Branner version is going in a slightly zany slightly less I don't know, on the spectrum, slightly more on the spectrum sort of version, whereas the Suchet version is more suave, mm-hmm. but disdainful. Yeah. Um, Brand has felt very much like an early Doctor Who. Well, that's like, because it's not even really a spin, it's just like taking from other characters versus your own unique interpretation of the character. It's like, oh, I'm going to take these other famous guys and then mash them together. So he's going to Istanbul to go on holiday. He's quite tired. And we meet Dr. Abenach on the boat. And we also meet Mary Debenham, who is very friendly and chatty. And the Mary and the doctor are chatting. And this is all quite similar to the book. And Poirot is very suspicious of the two of them. And... There are a few scenes of Poirot, and I think this is one of them, and I wish it kind of went more into this direction where I was like, oh, the, he's quite funny. I like this kind of the more kooky sense of humor Poirot versus the sort of stepping in ship Poirot where him and the bread, <laughs> where he's like freaks out on all the like perfectly made bread and pastries. Oh. Which, which, which I found very confusing because we just come from the whole egg debacle um, in which... The eggs are not perfect. And then you look at the bread and you go, but that's not perfect. Well, that's what I mean. It doesn't make sense. There's no consistency there. I I, I prefer the bread versus the egg thing. The bread thing was like cute versus the egg thing was like, this is a little bit weird. Yeah, same for me. 
And this is where he meets Book, who is with a prostitute. And Book is interpreted as being a bit of a bad boy in this film. Also so young compared to what I imagined in the book. Like, I imagined him being a similar age to Poirot. I did not imagine him being, like, young man about town. Mm -hmm. I read that too. The the acceptance of the prostitute felt very out of character for Poirot. I mean, a man who is so fastidious and correct in all of these other ways is is totally, you know, welcoming of of a, a lady of the night. In, a, in, a, in just a very unbelievable way, the two do not seem to sit well together. And isn't Poirot supposed to be Catholic as well? There's a bit of a religious thing to him, too, I think. Well, and, he has the, and we, we, we certainly see the photo of his lost love, whether it's a, a dead fiancé or I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah it was, is it Catherine? Yeah, Catherine. I've got no context from, well, from yeah, me, no. I don't know who she was. Yeah, I don't know if she's in any of the books. I mean, he's sort of like, I always, in my mind, cast him as sort of an asexual type of character. Like, he's mm. not, there's no romance with Poirot. He just is him. And, yeah, no, I mean, book, I read him being, they were of more similar standing. It's sort of, why would Poirot know book? Like, how would they have ever interacted, I guess? Mm. And they are going to go travel. So Poirot needs to go back to London and Book is going to take him onto the Orient Express Express, because he manages the trains because of nepotism. There's this whole gag about the fact that his father's uh, got him the job. As we're going to the Orient Express, we meet Mr. Marquez, Ratchet, ew, Johnny Depp, uh, Masterman. Yes. yes this this bit gave me an amazing idea for either a short film or a spin-off film. Okay, pitch it. Because the train is fully booked. Yeah. We assume it's fully booked, knowing what we know having watched it, by conspirators. So who is the guy who doesn't turn up? Mr. Harris! Who, who is Mr. Harris and what is his story? And what would it have been like if Mr. Harris had turned up and Poirot hadn't been able to get birth on the train. I thought they explained this in the book. There was never Mr. Harris. They they booked that spot because they didn't want anyone to show up. Because ah, they, wanted, they wanted this him is... alone in his cabin. Yeah. Oh, the this is why I should read the book. They, don't, they, they, they throw it away, which is almost like... The book explains it. The, the movie should, could have just not mentioned it at all and just had Poirot get a room. Because it's yeah. a bit of a weird throwaway thing, like 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 you say, Tom yeah. picked up on it, and it's just yeah. a light. Yeah, it's just a thing that just goes into nowhere, and then you're like, well, hang on, it's not that well planned. If this yeah. random dude could have turned up, no, like, and you could have even. I loved, had... I love the idea of a random dude just bumbling through this train. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else is involved in a murder plot except him. I just want to see him. He could him... get in the way. He could yes. get. He could get accidentally get in the way at every stage. Oh, it yeah. would be. Yeah, it was great in my mind. The world <laughs> will never see it. Sorry, you could. I mean, based off the film, you could do a spin-off because no one, except for those who read the book, would realize why there's this empty space. Mm. But I mean, clearly, they didn't plan this out very well. If if they were Poirot was able to get a spot, but well, I I think the point of that was it was just the leverage of the owner of the train was the only way he could get on board. Yeah, 
And they, they do make the point in the book and movie about how it's unusual for this many people to be travelling at winter anyway. So they're probably assuming their fictional Mr. Harris isn't going to turn up. No one else is going to turn up and be like, I'd like to last minute have this birth, please. Um, so yeah. they assume it's all going to be fine. But they don't expect the world's most famous detective to turn up and solve, <laughs> the, uh, solve the murder. Yeah, especially when... I love, I love that none of them seem to freak out, though. They're all like, oh, yeah. I've heard of you. Welcome. So something in the book, and we see this straight away when we're on the Orient Express because we get a few like solo scenes of introducing the different characters. And it feels really obvious in the film what's happening. And obviously we've read the books, we know it's going to happen. So it's sort of hard to separate that. But because the book is all through Poirot's perspective, but also like a superficial perspective, we're not seeing his intellectual process. We're just kind of visually seeing what he's seeing is happening. We only can put the pieces together based on that. Whereas this, we're getting to see the characters conspiring, which for me kind of ruins, not tension, but any sort of like, oh, you know, me trying to figure out the fact that they're all in on it. Mm. Do you think it's assumed that people watching it will know what's going to happen? Mm. Like, I know we didn't, but do you think like the typical Agatha Christie crowd? I was surprised you you hadn't. I, I was surprised you didn't know what what it was going to be. I assumed I assumed it was just one of those things that everyone at some point sees. Well, so did I. There were so many. Because there were so many versions of it, so I sort of assume that most of the audience come to it with that knowledge. Yeah, but I thought reading it, I would feel more familiar with it, if that makes sense. And then when I was reading it, I was like, oh, actually, no, this isn't what I expect at all. So, mm. but yeah, I think on for the most part, people do know what's coming anyway. Yeah. So they're okay. leaning into Yeah, so yeah. They, don't, they don't feel like they need to hide it. No. Okay. Fair point. But, so... But- Go ahead. No, no, I'll come back to it at the end because I keep trying to jump the gun with this one. We have a lot more to discuss. So then we meet Count Adrenin and oh, the people. Oh, the dancing Count and Countess. The guy punching him in, the guy punching the photographer in the bar. Yeah. The, yeah. Oh. What so was he's, vo- he's volatile, is he? Okay, okay I get it. <laughs> so he's a count, he's a dancer, and he's a fighter. <laughs> Where he just uh, has anger management problems, but doesn't like the paparazzi. That's quite there's your spin-off movie, Tom. I'm not doing a spin-off Count Dragonoff movie. <laughs> not Dragonoff. Adrenaline. Um, he dances was... and fights crime at the same time. <laughs> yes, no, that'd wait. Be Hang on, I'm talking myself into it. <laughs> <laughs> <We'll see that. laughs> Me too. It sounds much more exciting than this film. <laughs> I'm very, very confused by the characterization of these two. They have so yeah. little in this film, but are so bizarre. They're way younger and sexier than I thought they were as well. Everyone in this movie yeah, is way younger and sexier yeah. than I thought they would be. When I was reading the book, Judy Dench. I mean, she's right. she looks good. Yeah, I mean, she's no. definitely more attractive than how the character described in the book. Yeah. In the book, she's described as like ugly, don't they? Like multiple. Yeah. Yeah. They they say she's like yellowing and just like a toad. Yeah, she looks like a toad. (laughs) Like they describe as ugly and toad-like. 
but with like a face that is like unique and draws you in. Like it's yeah. the oddest combination. charismatic. Yeah. I wonder if that's what they put on the casting sheet when they <laughs> sent the same Judy's agent. <laughs> no. hmm. This feels like you. Hmm. <laughs> Hot Count and Countess. And then we also meet the Pierre Michel, the conductor. And he joins McQueen in the train car. I'm not a huge fan of Josh Gad. I thought he was. I thought he was pretty good in this movie compared to what he usually does. I, he didn't do anything as annoying as he as he often does. No, he's just not a very layered actor. I find. I, and, no, but but he was he was quite dialed down in this. I thought he was yeah. well directed. Mm-hmm. To be fair, he had one of the the, the most emotionally sa- satisfying scenes for me. But it didn't fit in with the rest of the movie. Yeah. The scene when he's talking about his dad um, and how his dad was involved with the Armstrong case, he's like crying and it's like quite quite a small and quiet scene. I thought it was really great. Like five minutes before that, we've got like this weird punch up on the the (laughs) bridge, um, which was totally a bit of a a bit of a shift. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't didn't like giving the 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 Poirot action movie bit didn't really need to be done. I said to Elias. As soon as we were snowdrifted on that rickety bridge, I was like, there's going to be a fight on this but, bridge. But, oh. Wait, it kind of makes me flashback to the fight um, in Star Wars Han Solo. Didn't they have like a bridge? On top of the train? Yeah. Wasn't there like a train uh, fight thing in Han Solo? Yeah, there was, there was, there, yeah, there's like a train thing they're trying to hijack. Yeah. And there's a, there's a fight on top of it. Yes, it made me flashback to that. Though I, this type of scene is in a lot of movies, so it's not very unique. Now I've got. Now I'm thinking about Han Solo, but with <laughs> uh, with Hercule Poirot in the lead role. Oh, it would be such a better film. What a movie! <laughs> yeah, what a movie. <laughs> we meet Mrs. Hubbard, and then we see gangster Johnny Depp slash Ratchet getting this threatening note. And do you notice? They had so much money, but when he gets the note and it's like the newspaper clippings on the piece of paper, that it's a photocopy, not actual pieces of newspaper stuck on a blank page. I did not spot that. I don't think you could photocopy in the 1930s. No. Uh, (laughs) Just like... Maybe take a few of the hundred millions and shove it into getting something to make a proper collage. So, so, so much criticism. Somewhere there's a prop master (laughs) crying into his whiskey. He should be. Mm. Shameful. And then there's this, like, kind of weird, creepy scene between uh, Hubbard and Ratchet where... She's like, she's kind of flirting with him, but not. And then he's being just Johnny Depp, I think. And then there's this gag where Poirot wakes up with the mustache mask for breakfast. Do you the know Hannibal Lecter thing. Yeah. I just, I, I understood they were trying to be funny, but it was just disconcerting. <laughs> And uh, we get uh, Monsieur Book and Poirot having breakfast together. And, okay, so we have to talk about, as much as we could talk about it, in 
them adding this whole layer, but not even really a layer because it's done in sort of a very superficial, insincere way, I felt, where you have the professor coming in and making a complaint about being seated with a black man. And this is a through line, I say in sort of air quotes throughout the film about talking about race and also talking, well, they talk about the um, Dr. Abernot and then also Mr. Marquez, because they make a comment about him being Latin and then there's comments about being Italian. It felt very awkwardly handled in that if they wanted to discuss something like this and you know rightly so in the 1930s would have been you know valid that it wasn't really done with any real thought it felt like that it was properly integrated into the story yeah it never felt like it went anywhere it felt like they set a lot of these things up to kind of build to discussion but it was all just set up. There was no real payoff or character development, even to the point where um, the professor... Um, Hardman. Hardman's character. When you get the reveal later on that he's not actually a professor and all this stuff, he makes some offhand comment about how he pretended to be a racist as part of his role. And like, yeah, it's like... Why? Why was your professor a racist? Like, what was the point of... Like, I, I would, if you said you're a professor, I just, I just believe you because I've got no reason not yeah. to. Like, you don't see more of a professor if you're a racist. Like, I thought it was really bizarre. Like, why are they just keeping that? Because there was lots of, like, references to kind of race in the actual original text of the novel. Like, because if so, like, that's something you can definitely not have, don't have to keep in your, like, kind of drama, comedy, action movie that you're making because in the book the only thing i remember was the bad jokes about italians and how they're more prone to being violent and poirot dismisses it for the most part but also is you know being as a belgian kind of being a cliche belgian and sort of like yeah, yeah, yeah italians are the worst but that's the only thing in the book that I can think that they're picking up on that they want to talk about in the film, but they do it in such a clumsy way that it just makes it feel more awkward. I don't know. Agreed, yeah. If it was incredibly awkward in, in the movie, I think. Um, especially because there isn't that um, that build-up or, or payoff. And I can't imagine it's like a long-con thing that's going to play out in the next movie. Yeah. What did you think, Tom? Uh, I think I'm even more cynical than you. I think it was just put in because they didn't want to make a movie about a bunch of white people. But they, so it doesn't. They, it doesn't need to be a bunch of white people. He can, Doctor Abernard can be black, but you don't need oh, to yeah, be yeah, racist. I, 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 yeah. No, I, I just think I just think it yeah. was heavy-handed. I think it was done badly. Yeah. But yeah. I just it, it was fairly unnecessary, and it's not a not a thread that goes anywhere. Because it. You know, it is a fictional film. I mean, it's based on the Charles Lindenberg mm. murder of his uh, son, but you can have characters of different ethnicities, but people don't need to be racist because of that. That's what, in my head, I'm like, okay, so you're having characters 
from different different ethnicities. But why does that mean that there also has to be characters that are racist because of that? Yeah, agreed. Like the the doctor mentions it towards the end. He mentions how uh, Armstrong was his best friend and like believed in him and like, gave him opportunities when he wouldn't have necessarily got them because of his race. Mm-hmm. But like that doesn't directly relate to the professor being racist. Like if you're going to have an uh, like an offhand racist comment, make it Ratchet's character, the guy you're setting up as this like awful villain. Uh, at least- uh- but it's a really easy and quick way to suggest tension between characters that the audience need to believe are not friends. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's what they were using it for. They were. It's like throwaway tension so that you don't feel comfortable with these people talking to each other or being in the same room. Therefore, don't suspect them. Yeah. Hmm. But then Daisy Ridley's character kind of ruined it in being like super lovey-dovey towards Dr. Abernot. And it was like, okay, well, clearly these people who say they don't know each other and she's like giving him gooey eyes constantly throughout the film. Because <laughs> then Poirot has this whole thing where it's like, it's so, you know, you're in Europe now. It's not America. If you guys have feelings for each other, it's all right. Yeah. This is obvious this is unique to the film and it just felt it really stuck out as being an insincere attempt at having a discussion about the politics of the time, but not with any sort of I don't think I don't think it was a sincere attempt to have a conversation no, about politics. I think I think it, it felt insincere. Oh no, I don't yeah. I don't think it was an attempt to have a conversation about the politics of the time one way or mm-hmm. another. I think it was just lazy, you know. Attempt to create drama where there wasn't yeah, any shorthand, but yeah, drama and character tension. Yeah. Moving on, so we have oh, the but, but but that okay. will play into my my larger thesis later on, which I'm still okay, too okay. early. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, I'll, I'll try to move more quickly. So Ratchet and Poirot have a discussion, and Ratchet tries to hire Poirot to uh, stop all the threatening someone's threatening to kill him and again these are the mannerisms that I do enjoy that I feel like he's building up of Poirot and I hope further down the line he kind of sticks with this version of him when he's like in bed giggling and reading I don't know if this is when he's in bed but when he's like sitting in the dining room and he's like oh Dickens and snickering to himself that was quite charming I did uh, I liked silly Poirot in the middle of the night, the conductor answers a call to Ratchet and also Mrs. Hubbard. And then we see the woman in red, in the red robe, running through the hall. And then this very dramatic, expensive scene of the train uh, sort of crashing slash getting snowed over and getting stuck in the snowbank. I really didn't like that because in the book, half the characters are like don't know it's happened. Because exactly, whereas on the train, you're definitely gonna fucking know it's happened there, aren't you? Yeah. Because also, there's one shot of the train, and the train's like tipped over. Yeah, it's like it's crashed or derailed. Yeah. It was definitely one shot where it's like at a forty-five degree angle. Yeah. Yeah. The train is derailed in the movie. And that's why the team have to come back and like realign it. And why at the end they get them all off the train while they attempt it in case it goes wrong and pulls the whole thing off the the bridge. Whereas in the book, it's like no one notices. Because if like a real snowbank 
you just get stuck. There's no yeah, it's tumbling over. Dramatic, obviously. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So th- we have the next morning, and Monsieur Book uh, informs everyone of the circumstances that they're stuck. And you see this Penelope Cruz's character, Pilar Estravados, this God fearing woman. We sort of get introduced to her. And we have Mr. Ratchet is not answering his door and Poirot passes and realizes there's something wrong and he bursts in and we find the dead Ratchet, Mr. Ratchet. And also I'm realizing at this time that there's sort of the problem that the because we've gotten rid of the character of Dr. Constantine, I think he was, yeah. that the doctor is in on the crime because the doctor is Dr. Abernat who knows what he's in on it, yeah. which seems kind of strange. I don't know if that really works in the person who's supposed to be informing Poirot on the circumstances of the character's death. It's the one who oh, helped him die. In, in the book, he's not involved in the crime. No, not at the all. Separate he's characters, a- yeah. There's a a colonel who's involved called Colonel Abernath and then Dr. Constantine is a separate character. So is there any is there anybody else? Is there anybody else in the book who's on the train who's not involved apart from uh, the 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 guy the book? No, it's just so it's just three of them together. So Constantine, Poirot, and Book are working on the crime together. There are other there are other characters in other carriages and other conductors um, who we don't meet or get introduced to, but there are other, other people on the train. Okay, but in the first class carriage, it's just the yeah, murderers yeah. and those three. Okay, got it. Yeah. So I, I, in my head, I'm like, I don't know, thinking out this crime, if it makes sense, the person, yeah, talking about the dead body, who's in on it. He, I mean, he knows how he died because he did it. I think, then, I, think, um, I think it does make sense because if Praro's not there and the doctor's mm-hmm. in on it, he tells whoever's in charge, this is what happened to him, I'm a doctor, I know how he died, it couldn't have been any of these people. Brilliant, you've got like an expert there who's getting you off mm-hmm. the hook. Because Praro's yeah. investigating it, you're a bit nappy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Poirot tells everyone that Ratchet has died and he's sort of trying to observe everyone's reactions and is this when we see Poirot walking on top of the train? Yep. yep. And I'm just sort of Why? Yep. Where? Why? How? Aren't we in like negative degree weather and he's just in like a normal tweed suit? Yeah. There's quite a lot of shots throughout where they're out in the freezing cold. Like when he interviews, is it Mary Debenham? Yeah. And she comes out and she's just in like a dress and a coat. And she's like, all right, we're just in the snow. <laughs> we'll yeah, the or they're, they're sat by a whole open freight train side. Yeah. yeah. It's like absolutely freezing. Half the scenes from this point on, like, regardless of the content, like, they're, the, the reason they're set up how they are is to look nice. But yeah. make no mm. no sense in context. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Let's not talk about that whole table thing in the tunnel. We'll get to that. Last supper setup in a tunnel. Yes, last supper exactly. And like, yeah. it's at this point that Prara gets his coat out right at the end. I'm like, where's his coat, Prara? That was <laughs> half the fucking film. 
Uh, the little gray we... cells, they need the freezing cold to function. Are we still in Turkey at this point? Where Where's that city that they were in last time? Yeah. Oh. This is a side note, but have you ever played Ticket to Ride? No. Board game. No. Okay, there's no conduct. Basically, it's based on these old school trains, and all of the cities you go through are the ones that they mention in the book. Oh, that's cool. No, where do you guys remember the name of the city that they're in before they get stuck? Istanbul. Oh, no. What? It starts with a V. Oh, you did say it in your notes, but I can't. I, I can't oh. pronounce it. Like, what would what, what would the temperature be, Vincovsi? Vincovsi. What would be temperature be in this city uh, at the time? So it's in eastern Croatia, and so it would be, I suppose, this time of year. Right now, it's about four degrees Celsius. So, Chilly. I mean, yeah, not a shiver in sight from any of the characters. <laughs> they were made of sterner stuff in the 1930s. Clearly so. So, uh, <laughs> everyone finds out that Ratchet has died. And we have the interview with McQueen, the secretary. And we don't really find anything out yet, but then there's this, again, we mentioned before, there's this uh, thing about looking at Marquez because he's Latin and his last name connotates the fact that he would be a murderer. I didn't really think the last name Marquez would be problematic call me ignorant I guess so they try to point to him though the character doesn't really have a lot of lines anyway in the film we examine the dead body and we find the barbitrals took that would have made him pass out and then we go outside again because <laughs> we need to for this scene obviously where he's found a clue which is a fragment of a burnt note and I don't, what is this trick? He took a piece of paper and put it over an open flame and then the yeah. words are alighted. Is this a thing? Didn't question it at the time, now I'm questioning it. It. I was very confused about how this works, if this works. My only, my only thought is there is, maybe I'm an absolutely different from thinking of is there something to do with uh, like lead or iron filings in ink in the in 1930s? So when mm -hmm. he heats the paper, paper burns, but they light up because they're burning metal, and that sounds, means sounds absolutely plausible to me. I'm with you. Science, <laughs> Bosh, science. Yeah, <laughs> totally believe you, Sean. <laughs> and so. Well, Via this note, he figures out that Ratchet is really Cassetti. And we find out about the murder of Daisy Armstrong. Then we have a scene of Hubbard and Poirot together. And she's telling him that there's a man in her room. And that she found a uniform button. 
And then there's a series of other interviews. We interview Masterman, and they add to <laughs> Hello, do we have a guest? Hi, Hi Winter. Yes, you say pretty. You Sorry. would have been, you would have loved the climate that the snow was <laughs> in. You would have enjoyed being outside in the snow. <laughs> we He's never seen snow. He hasn't? That's so that. cruel. <laughs> it's not, it's not by choice. No. You take him up to like Scotland or something. Okay. So Masterman, who's Ratchet's valet, is dying of thyroid cancer. But what does that have to do with a toothache? It, it, it wait, it's a convenient excuse, isn't it? Um, it, be, it becomes their shorthand for the fact that Pyro knows he's dying of thyroid cancer. Yeah, yeah. but what does a toothache have to do with thyroid cancer? It doesn't, it excuses why he's in pain or something. In pain and taking pills and stuff, yeah. Okay. Um, but I think it, I think I think that whole dialogue is supposed to show Poirot's uh, human deductive. interaction side. No, no, that he's willing to go along with that lie. Oh, he's okay. willing to call it his toothache. Yeah. You know, because that is that is fine. That is okay, that okay. is a human deception. I get it. Yeah. And then we meet Mrs. Estevados, who is a nurse slash former missionary. Professor Hardiman, who is presented as sort of this Nazi character, and Mr. Marquez, who's the chauffeur, uh, Mary Debenham again, Princess Dragomirov, Fraulein Schmidt, poor Olivia Coleman, she's so wasted. And also, anyone notice that when she's speaking English, she has a British accent? You didn't notice it particularly. That her German is quite good when she's speaking German, but then the moment she switches to English, it's with a British accent. I think we've established I don't really notice accents. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, for I forgot you have that flaw. We have the bit where he finds a silk robe in his suitcase in the uniform in the Fraulein's room. And there's this. Josh Gad in a chase sequence is just not very believable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's this whole chase scene under the sort of, I mean, it's underneath the train rails and sort of where the like, scaffolding, I suppose, or whatever you want to call it. Um, he's. This I is why. This is why Pryro in the TV show has Hastings, yeah. because Hastings, like Watson to Holmes, does all the running. Yeah. So you can have somebody being chased without you going, hang on, that makes no sense for that character. Mm -hmm. Surely Priori is stuffing a pipe where she doesn't smoke, doesn't he? Twirling his moustache and watching the Josh Gay character and going, <laughs> but that but that is okay because ten minutes ago I removed the actual book from his room. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like have book do it. Like even yeah. this like young cad who can like handle himself, like even if you have Poirot noticed. Well, no, I, I mean, Book is clearly the Hastings character here. He's yeah. the guy yeah. holding the gun on everyone so Poirot doesn't have yeah. to. But it's the, you know, there's sort of constant need to put Poirot into man of action role, whether he's standing on top of an icy train for no particular reason, yeah. or whether he's running running down Josh Gad um, and then having a fight 
Uh, it just yeah. really feels out of character. Weird. It didn't, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. What, a, why he was... Why was he running? I didn't get it. He was trying to get rid of this evidence that he thought would incriminate him. This, like, I think mm. in the book sort of the, the evidence that he could have just very easily thrown out the window. Exactly my point. Like, in throw it or burn it in the room. Like, you know? Mm. Anyway. Yeah. But I can, I can totally see the studio just, like, looking at the script and giving notes and going, you know what the problem with this is? Yeah, this this Poirot guy needs to be, you know, more active. He needs to have a couple yeah. of fights or something. Otherwise, why you have a know. shoot out near an open cargo door over the side of the bridge <laughs> later on? <Right. laughs> um, I like your suggestion that we make Book do all the action sequences. I think that would have been made much more sense and mm. made him the, you know, Watson, I suppose, character. And it adds a bit more tension later on when someone pulls a gun on Poirot. Because you you haven't seen him like handle himself in like three altercations. <laughs> no, absolutely. I always loved that in the TV show. You know, Hastings would go charging off after the guy in the shadows who's just taken a shot at Pyro or something, and David Suchet, being a portly gentleman, wouldn't move very much. And then Hastings yeah. would come back huffing, going, "Oh, I lost him, Pyro." And Suchet would go, "Oh, for God's sake!" <laughs> Every time, just to keep the mystery going, it was great. <laughs> So, I mean, these people really don't feel the cold. It's very, also seeing them out there makes me uncomfortable. We have the scene where he confronts McQueen, who we find out was stealing money from Ratchet. And Dr. Abernot also gives the him an alibi that he, they were together. And then you, we have that scene that you mentioned where you like the sort of emotional aspect of seeing Josh Gad breakdown about his dad because mm. he finds out that his dad was the lawyer on the trial um, around Daisy Armstrong and then uh, so yeah so we find that out about his dad because he was in charge of the case and he tried the case against the French maid who ended up killing herself and then we hear Mrs. Hubbard screaming and she has a knife in her back. Yep. I, okay. In, in the book, Tom, just for context, in case you're not, not aware. Um, I was going to ask, yeah. does scream and come running into the room because she's found the knife stashed in one of her bags. Um, Got it. She's not stabbed. <laughs> that just seems so unnecessary. Do you think this is why the doctor had to be in on it? Because they needed someone who knew how to stab? Safely. No, because in the movie, don't they establish the fact that for whatever bizarre reason, mm. they they do this. Um, this was never part of the plan to stab her. It, it wasn't, but they do have the doctor doing it, and somebody in the voiceover does say something about doing it safely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but like yeah. I'm not saying that they the characters think that, but do you think the device was for the makers so that they could have someone who would do that mm. and wouldn't like maim her? Yeah. Um, I didn't really get. Well, she's not. She's not going to let anybody else do it, is she? Because yeah. the yeah. likelihood yeah. of severe spinal damage seems significant. <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand what the what why they stabbed. Oh um, no, I don't know why either. But if they oh no, I totally, I totally got all of that for the same reason that our booth not comes in and very obviously gives him a fake alibi at just the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean they were. 
they're all starting to panic that he's getting a bit too close to it because he's talking to too many people about the one thing that connects them. Yes. And it, it's becoming more chaotic because obviously they're real scrambling to try and cover things up. Whereas... Well, I, I, I guess there's also a certain ticking clock here that you don't really have made that evident in the movie in that there's only a certain amount of time for, for Poirot to get to the bottom of it because otherwise they'll arrive at the next station and people will disappear and then it, it will never be resolved. Yeah. Well, so I guess if they, can, I mean, if they can keep it going, then, they could, then they'll get away with it. Well, in the book, they establish like the reason why he says yes to doing it is because book says, you know, we're going to be arriving in Yugoslavia. Oh, this is the thing. So he says we're going to be arriving in Yugoslavia or whatever it was at that period. And because oh, they'll just pick the- on somebody and hang them. No, yet. no, they'll, they'll just pick the Italian guy because they hate yeah. Italians. So don't you want the right person to be charged for this crime? So there is a ticking time. Um, in the sense that Poirot wants to solve it before they get to the next train stop because he doesn't want... Yes, I meant, I meant more for the, the conspirators. Mm-hmm. They just need to keep it chaotic yeah. and confusing for long enough. Mm-hmm. So, Which I, I, I understood that as enough motivation behind, behind putting the knife in her back. Yeah. We have everyone in the dining car again, and then he finally decides to go see the Count and Countess. They are so weird and overly sexy. It's it's very, very bizarre. I've got to say, I'd forgotten they existed at this point. I I think most people had. (laughs) They kind of remind me of, like, what Johnny Depp and like Kate Moss were like in the 90s sort of that vibe that sort of crack chic vibe because <laughs> she's like you know very drugged out and they talk about their dancing but they're also diplomats at the same time which I don't know how that works but okay. he's a count he's a count um, but he's a, he's a Dancing but he's a dancer. Yeah, he's the dancing <laughs> crime-solving count. <laughs> I hope he loves to count. I want him to be like a Sesame Street count as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't really... This bizarre characterization of them. Rather than, you know, in the book, they're just sort of these aloof, wealthy people. And... Yeah, and I, 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 find, I find the device of the drug-taking quite... I don't know. I find it offensive how how because they because it's just in the, towards the end there is a shot of her pouring the drug down the sink with his help, mm-hmm. and it's it just like as though as though now she has achieved total closure and therefore no longer yeah. needs drugs. And yeah. It was just it was lazy. But also, like she's still taking the drugs, and he's dead by then, and she knows that. Uh, yeah. But, but like the whole reason for the drug taking is, is, is the, the catharsis has been entirely achieved by the murder and now she's going to be fine. Yeah. And we find out that, and then we he figures out then and there that she's actually Helena, who's the sister of Sonia, who's the, who was the mother of Davy Armstrong. And then we have a scene where he's with Professor Hardiman, who we find out is actually a detective slash former policeman. And then 
I think this is when he apologizes for being racist as well. Because yep. <laughs> that's part of his characterization. I'm sorry about all those heavy-handed, off-color comments. <laughs> that was part of my character. We have then Poirot talking to Catherine, who is what we are made to think is his sort of lost love. And we have all the passengers moved outside to the cold with not a lot of winter wear on. And he has this conversation with Mary while they have tea outside. And he finds that, figures out that she was the governess. And then we have the, the fight scene between Abernat and Poirot in the open train car. You know, just a little bit of tension and action. And he confesses that he killed Ratchet because he doesn't want Poirot to suspect Mary. And he says that he was John Armstrong's best friend. And so, so I made this uh, frantic, I was trying to make a list of who was who, because uh, you have the sort of last supper scene that they set up. <laughs> and so after, so Book saves Poirot, you mentioned the Hastings character, and he reveals the possible solutions to everyone, So which are the same in the book, the first one being some uh, unnamed assailant sneaking on and off the train to kill him and we we're seeing on the table we have Dr. Abenot who is John Armstrong's best friend Mary who's the governess Helena the sister the princess was the godmother the maid the princess's dragon Mirov's maid was the former cook then we have um what was her name Penelope Cruz's character was the nurse for Daisy. And then Masterman was Armstrong's valet. Marquez was their chauffeur. Hardman was the police officer on the case and in love with the falsely accused maid. McQueen was the son of the lawyer on the case. Pierre Michel was the brother of the accused maid who committed suicide. And then we have Linda Arden, who was the mother of Sonia, who is actually Hubbard, and she was wearing a wig, and that was her disguise. Uh, I think, did I get everyone? Everyone, I think, yeah. And, sorry? Rich people have a lot of star. They do. What's the difference between a valet and a secretary? I don't know. And like a, a government. Shaving? And a nanny and a maid, like they're all very similar. Yeah. yeah, there's a nurse and a maid and a governess. Isn't mm. there a bit of overlap? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and then he sort of at that point realizes that everyone did it and that they had all stabbed him. So there was 12 stabs, each did it. I'm also finding a little bit it a little bit odd, and I think this is both in the book and the film that the mother and daughter aren't very close. Hubbard and Helena, mm. sort yep. of like quite. I mean, there's not a ton of character building. Obviously, there's not enough time, and you just say that she orchestrated this entire elaborate murder. 
to help yeah. her daughter get over a drug addiction. Mm. So that's some care. That's true. So I hated this scene so much when Paro is like, well, the only way you're going to get away with this is if you kill me. <laughs> so... <laughs> this was, was like his real shade towards Book. When he's like, you have to kill me because I can't lie. Book will lie for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paro, cut the boy some slack. I know, I was just sort of... But then was it a bluff? Because then... Uh, Hubbard slash Arden, she takes a gun and tries to kill herself. Is is this is this in the book? I assume it isn't. No, no. this is not right. in the book at all. So I I think this is one of when whenever anybody adapts this, they try and establish a kind of thematic through line to give a connection between the character of Poirot and the sort of moral dilemma that the ending presents. David Suchet's version has a whole lot about justice and who gets to decide justice. And all the way through David Suchet is like, no one gets to decide justice, justice is justice. And then he gets to the end and he has to make this decision. And he has this terrible shot where he kind of cries on camera because his world is breaking at, at the reveal that sometimes you have to make a decision. And I think what this is, the whole thing with the un, with the unloaded gun is an attempt to uh, make it okay, to give those characters some sort of, um, or at least to give Poirot a sort of way out. Like he doesn't have, to, all the way through we've been told he's going to find the criminal and deliver them to the police and save the otherwise falsely accused man by this device of, her sort of saying, you know what, I'd rather die and take it upon myself because this is the most important thing. It gives him an excuse to then say, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you all go free. So in the book, so I feel like the reputation, like reading about Poirot, he very much goes by, and even watching the TV show, he goes by moral law, which doesn't necessarily mean the same as legal system law. And in the book, the only thing he says about it, there's no like philosophizing about whether this is right or wrong. He says, Poirot looked at his friend. You are the director of the company, Monsieur Book. He said, what do you say? Monsieur Book cleared his throat. In my opinion, Monsieur Poirot, he said, the first theory you put forward was the correct one. Decidedly so. I suggest that th this is the solution we offer to the Yugoslavian police when we arrive. You agree, doctor? Certainly, I agree, said Dr. Constantine. As regards to the medical evidence, I think uh, that I made one or two fantastic suggestions. Then, said Poirot, having placed my solution before you, I have the honor to retire from the case. That's all he says on the matter. Which, which I think is, a, is actually a much more artful way of doing it. You know, Poirot, as the eternal observer of, of human activity, who essentially has done what Poirot is interested in doing, which is uncover the truth, and then it's no longer his business. These weighty matters of justice or, or truth with a capital T is, is just not, you know, is, is out of his hands. And for the audience, I think it's entirely satisfying. You know, you're like, okay. And then, then they, they disappeared into the night and they were left, as we all are as audience members, to debate whether they were just or unjust in, in taking the law into their own hands. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know why every adaptation needs to make it so much more dramatic as we get towards the end yeah 
Yeah, I didn't like this scene because then he he walks away and he has this internal monologue with the dead Armstrong, who we had found out had written him a letter when the case was going on. He was never able to help him and sort of in his mind he comes he essentially justifies it by saying you know this is him helping armstrong in a sense and says he'll tell the cops the first yeah solution. and it's sort of again just an unnecessary justification for his decision it's more interesting to leave it open to the audience yeah but can we can we go back and complain more about the staging of this scene um yes. the last supper shot is so distracting like, I mean, it's, it's so like I feel like someone was taking a hammer and being like, but "Look it's, at that. But it's so it's so clumsy and it adds nothing. I mean, it has it has literally no relevance to it. If someone can explain to me what the Last Supper has to do with what is about to happen, this I'd Jesus love to in know. this uh, in the setting, uh, he's in the mind of the nurse who's who's always thinking about Jesus. No, 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 God. in where people are seated. Uh, I don't know, but it's it's so. <laughs> uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Yeah. <laughs> Is she Jesus? I think yeah. in the position. Yeah. I'll go to that church. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I'll attend that church. But it's it's such a laboured, you know. It's just so distracting. Mm. Although although thinking about it, I don't know. I, I guess they spend well, a lot of time. They mean... spend a lot of time in the film trying to get people off the train in order to get away from having a lavish, expensive movie that has people only on a train. Yeah. So but I that's understand. a cool bit of it, being on a train. I mean... Not a cheap train to go on either. No, the, the Orient Express is... Well, they're not doing the whole thing. It's just a section that they're tra- using it to travel. Um, yeah, I just felt like... Agatha Christie isn't known necessarily for a lot of character development because they're a little bit one-dimensional. We don't get a lot of time with a lot of these characters. But for some reason, I feel like it was even clumsier and less character development in the film than in the book. I think they they don't have enough time. I, I think there is just literally too much to do to give anybody sufficient time. Yeah. And part part of my problem with it as a film is is something I don't think they could really get away from, which is that every interview scene, they're going to have to talk about this Armstrong case. And so you get to a certain point in the movie and it's like every conversation is about this Armstrong case. Therefore, that is exactly what connects more. And then you have this weird thing where Pryor himself seems to be, they seem to be trying to have their cake and eat it. There are scenes where Pryor almost jumps on it before um, the conversation gets to that point because he suspects that they are connected. And then there's other bits near the end where he's like totally confused by the whole connection and doesn't seem to understand it. And the mm-hmm. two the two don't make sense together. They sort of needed to decide which way they were going to go. But I, I think there's too much information. There's too much coincidence. You, you can't, you can bury a lot of the coincidences if you have a four-hour TV show because you can have subplots that have nothing to do with it. They can be talking about other bits of their lives. You can introduce more distractions. But here, everything is really pared down. 
Yeah. I don't know. I didn't think the film was actually pared down. I thought it was more, they added too much and it could have been more pared down. Really? Yeah. I mean, like I, I just, the mystery is that, the, it's an interesting question. It's a very simple book. I don't know about you guys having read it. I felt like, it's not, I mean, it's complicated in the sense there are a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different people in it, but I felt like the actual mystery of it was very simple. I found it quite hard to keep track of the characters because new ones kept being introduced, but mm. once they were all there, yeah, you're right, the actual story isn't that complex. Well, it is, but... Well, I think I think the pleasure comes from the end. You know, the, the pleasure comes from the way it all connects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that, that's mostly really well done, except for the murder scene, which is fucking nonsense um oh and we that, that that flashback when we see them all stabbing oh yeah, my god but, but you, you see you see them all stabbing and it's incredibly weird because it somebody's directed them to be be one thing and then the minute the daggerlands have a totally opposite reaction it's really weird they all do it but then you have this shot of them all leaving the carriage like literally one after another like it, it's almost like a carnival yeah, and it's like, well, hang on. We've just seen we've just seen a shot where some of them are spending a couple of seconds agonising over it before doing the stabbing. So the person before them is already outside the carriage. <laughs> so why are they why are they now all following each other out? It, it, baffling. I didn't understand why why they needed to show the the murder mm -hmm. scene. Like, you, because you've already got you've got them admitting that that is what happened. That he's right, and they all were involved and did kill him. So like. It's not like you're trying to leave it up to the audience's imagination about whether which one of his solutions is right or not. You're matter-of-factly saying solution two, they all did it, is correct. So, like, mm -hmm. you don't need to show the murder happening. Like, yeah. it just seemed they wanted you, the murder. You, you don't need to, but I think it is, it is an established trope of the genre that when you get to the reveal there is I, I think there's always like a flashback there's always Poirot descri or, or the detective describing what happened and then you see it yeah so I would have been disappointed to not have any of it I just think it was it was amazingly badly staged yeah I am um, I don't I don't think the kind of all flashbacks of black and white thing oh that was anything yeah. that felt very like it felt like my first movie at film school. Like, we're going to do black and white flashbacks. We're going to do a Last Supper um, motif. Uh, um, and we're going to have a little nod to the sequel in case we get to do one. Yeah, 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 exactly. Of course, at the end, which they did, apparently, but we can't, we'll never get to see it. <laughs> I, I was going to say it reminded me of historical reenactment scenes in like documentaries that we watch in school. I, I just want to see it again, but play the Benny Hill music over the murder scene. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that would totally make sense to me. I think the two would work really, really well. Yeah. But that's what I mean when I, I say, I don't, I think it could have been pared down more. Like I, for me, I didn't need those flashback scenes. Mm -hmm. I would have liked more, cause it was, they obviously had an amazing cast and... But, but, but there's a fundamental question here, which I find really interesting, which is, I mean, we've touched on it in that a number of us are intimately familiar with this because we've seen it a whole bunch of times. So we're going in knowing what the, knowing who the murderers are. Some other people have come to it and either have forgotten who the murderers are or didn't know to start with. <laughs> so who's, the, who's this for? 
because mm. and I don't think it's a question the film ever answers. It tries to somehow please everybody and therefore ends up pleasing nobody. I would have been very happy with just a very sumptuous, slightly over the top, very well acted, you know, period piece um, without mm. all of the other stuff thrown in. But then I'm not trying to follow the narrative. I'm not trying to be the detective in the audience unpicking who done it because I know going in who done it. But clearly they have also tried to um, make it interesting for audiences who are trying to be the detective themselves and like figure it out and, and, and you know, get distracted and not distracted and decide who to believe and who not to believe and everything else. But But that also doesn't work because there's not enough distraction because everything just has to be dialogue wise. It's about, it's about the murder of that girl. Because otherwise, if we don't start talking about it early and start talking about it in every conversation, we're not going to get enough information. Though. The problem, I think this uh, adaptation runs into, and I've not seen any of the others, so maybe they have a similar issue, is um, because, the, because this is the 10th the book in the series, the book spends basically zero time introducing you to characters you've already met in previous books. Whereas because this is potentially is the first movie in a franchise, they spend like half an hour introducing you to who Hercule Poirot is, who Book is, who I assume is like a character you've met in previous books before. Whereas in the, so you waste half an hour. Getting- yeah, I don't, and I don't think you need it. I don't think you need it for any audience. I think you no. just like, it's a detective movie. He's the detective. He's a bit quirky. Don't worry about it. You'll get used to it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think you can open with the train already going. Yeah. Which which I think the, I, uh, I'm, don't quote me, I may well be wrong, but I think the classic 1970s version just opens at the train station. Mm. And it's just people right. getting on the train. Because I don't think, the, the movie, like, it's just over two hours, but it didn't feel like it dragged or anything. It had like, a decent pace to it. But if you if you spend thirty minutes of that expanding on the characters a little bit, so it's not like you say, Tom, like uh, from from dot one, this is how they relate to the old case. This is how they relate to the old case. Like you can establish their fictional personas. You can establish her as Mary Debenham before you reveal that that's not who she is, because the reveal is so quick. You don't yeah. pretend. And, and part of the problem was very early on somebody says, isn't that too much of a coincidence? And he says, you get one. And then oh, literally, yeah. the, ne- literally the next scene, there. there's another coincidence. You're yeah. like, okay, well now, you know, now this, is, this can't be coincidental. So I know what, I know what the, the thing is. Yeah. But I agree, yeah, you, you could have easily lost a lot of the beginning and you wouldn't have lost anything in narrative mm-hmm. terms and given yourself a bit more breathing room. Because I mean, in the book, you do have the fact that he's wrapping up a case and that, and then he's moving on, but we don't really get too much into what that case was. I think probably the book that came before this book was likely that case. So you can read book nine and find out what where he was I, coming from. I don't know how sequential they are in that way. I, my understanding was that it's... That they that they don't work and they're not intended as a series. That they okay. Uh, I don't know. haven't read haven't read them. May well be wrong. <laughs> the the Suchet one, I believe, starts with the handing down of judgment in the court, and he leaves. Like okay. it, it doesn't it doesn't waste a lot of time in Istanbul. Yeah. Okay. Um. That's fair. But yeah, I that's what again what I mean. And take out all that stuff in the beginning. I didn't need it. 
spend more time establishing the the fake version of the characters on the train so then the reveal is a little more impactful even though we know what's going to happen you know sort of build up the characters a bit more because otherwise it's just like cameos by really you know a-list actors they're barely doing anything and you can do all the the book doesn't do it this way but the book handles it slightly because it is all just conversation it works a little bit better but you don't have to have all the reveals individually like the movie does like every time he figures out one of the characters is related to the Armstrong case you reveal it then like have him reveal it all at the end and have it that be solution to him going I know how all of you connect to the Armstrong case here and now and that's why I think you're all in it together instead of like drip feeding us how each one of them relates to it so then at the end when he goes over it all again I'm like I already know that this is how they're all connected yeah oh but you got to have the reveal at the end you got to have the summation the detective standing in the library going this is why and the, and let me go let me take you from the beginning to the end oh yeah but you, you know can- they always they, they always stand up and go, oh, there's been so much confusion and so many red herrings, but now, let me make everything clear. You're like, oh, okay, great. This is going to be good. But, I... I, but in, every, in every interview scene, he basically makes it clear what the connection is. To the yeah, that's what I mean. That's, that, that's the issue. Yeah, yeah. Like, it feels like he's, he's ticking off, he's, he's revealing what the red herrings are as he goes. So when you get to the end, you've kind of already got it laid out before you. You don't need him to reveal it to you because he's kind of done it bit by bit no, we... but it, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by this sort of idea of how they pitched it like it, it's it's weird it's a murder mystery except half the audience will already know what the answer is <laughs> yeah. had, had Knives so... Out come out already or no that was after this Knives mm, Out I want to say Knives Out came out just after this yeah Knives Out was after this yeah because that I Knives Out isn't perfect, but I enjoyed it as like a cozy, you know, murder mystery film. And I feel like that's reviving that genre. Well, wasn't Knives Out largely satirizing Hercule Poirot yeah. the figure of Benoit Blanc? Because yeah. they're, they're doing Knives Out too, and the only returning character is the detective. Yeah. So they're doing that setup. Is this going to be what Kenneth Branagh wished his franchise would be? This is like the better version. But isn't isn't Knives Out great because Benoit Blanc is just absolutely wrong? Isn't isn't that the whole? Because he doesn't he do this whole denouement? Except it's a version, but it's not correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does, yeah. He does a couple. He does two reveals, I think, in Knives Out of like this is what I think could have happened, but both of them are wrong, and then you get a final reveal of what actually happened. Yeah. You know, I I, I like. I think it, sort of in the 80s, you had a lot of those types of films and I always found them really fun and mm. silly. And Knives Out does the same thing where it's got um, it's got like an all-star cast kind of thing. Like every character is like a name you know, but yeah. like just is much more fun and like consistent tonally. Yeah. And really works. Yeah, I just didn't find that the how they wrote Poirot's character was consistent. It and establishing what his interpretation of him is i was very confused by i think that i think that's i think the problem with that is um it's because the film wasn't consistent like in every scene he was in in isolation that version of Poirot worked for that scene but it's because the movie was doing action weird <laughs> comedy like loads of different things so he had to fit into all of these different 
part where if the book is like a consistent through piece well we'll see how because we've now committed to doing death on the nile when it eventually comes out don't don't get me wrong i'm i'm quite looking forward to death on the nile i'm sure there will also be a lot to enjoy in terms of the mise-en-scene and, and the performances and the you know, general look of it. Yeah, I don't know who the murderer is. And and also, I can't, yeah, I can't remember who the murderer is. So. Yeah. Uh, I think Give I'm me gonna five watch... minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to watch the film first for that one and see. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because, I mean, it, it's always, I always have that dilemma, do, you mm. know, because I'm reading into it. But I, I think because it's a murder mystery and obviously, like, surprise of who did the who done it or whatever yeah. it's a little bit different that reveal so having the reveal be in the film see whether or not that changes well i need to read the book first then because it takes me longer to read the book i need to, <laughs> to get me through if i know the mystery going in it's hard for me to get through yeah do we are rose and thorns or do we have any more criticism <laughs> for the story structure of the film well, i can still rose and thorn yeah yeah. Go for it, John. I volunteered myself, fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did like the Count doing a fight with the paparazzi. You really? Like, it, like, it made no sense, didn't fit in the movie, but like, it was oh. probably the scene I enjoyed most. I, I did, I did like the very kind of Avengers way that the guy in the background takes a photo and the count yeah, just doesn't even <laughs> barely looks at him and the guy just goes, oh, whoops, <laughs> butterfingers, don't hit me. Um, in all seriousness, though, in the movie, I know Ellie didn't like this at all, but I liked this quite oh, a lot. the shot from above. The shot from above. What shot from above? The scene there, were couple, these... there were a couple of shots from above. Oh, There's a couple of shots so from long. above. I hate it. It made me feel seasick. Um, so you can kind of see the how the train is kind of broken down at different compartments and you're looking oh. down there investigating the kind of murder. It's when they find the body. When they find the body, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And you see the clues around yeah, the room. Like, I liked it for two reasons. I thought it was an interesting way of using that kind of confined space. Um, and because of the angle, it's like, this is how Poirot's looking on things. He's looking at everything from a different angle to everyone else. Um, and it reminded me of like a Cluedo board. It was like these like rooms stuff. I was like, that's kind of cute for me anyway. But Ellie hates it. No, oh, that's my thorn. That's your thorn, yeah. <laughs> um, my my thorn is the like beautiful shots that didn't make any sense in context of the film. Like they were visually like appealing to look at, but like instantly as soon as I'm over the like, oh, this is nice to look at. Mm. Like, but why are they doing this? Why are they outside? Why is the side of this train open? Why are they sat in this tunnel? Why is no one freezing? Why is no one freezing? <laughs> um, why is he walking on the roof of this train across like a massive canyon? Like looked beautiful, but immediately like makes no fucking sense. To Just me. felt incredibly dangerous. That that must be slippery as <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, who would like to go next for their rose and thorn? Uh I can. Uh I lo- my rose was I liked Poirot when he was eating. He's quite <laughs> him and his desserts. Every time he's him and food, uh, I enjoyed. But my thorn is like the characterization of him and all the other characters were really bizarre and inconsistent and just didn't make sense. It was infuriating and sort of like 
I don't understand who these people are because from scene to scene, they're completely changing. Like people are allowed to be dynamic, but you need a little bit of. <laughs> especially, no. especially Plaro, who's the only character who's meant to be the same person the whole way through. Yes, he's not. can be a bit inconsistent because they're faking who they are. Because <laughs> that's a thing I do enjoy, even if the book is like very fine. I enjoyed in the book that he was this sort of, you know, five foot five sort of portly, you know, egghead gentleman, <laughs> quite a little bit silly type of man. Like, you know, he's quite a nice read and I didn't get that at all. Any essence of that in the film, really. Because he's, he's meant to be the through line. That's what keeps the book or the series going. And I felt no stability with that character to carry a franchise. Who's next? I've already given you my form, so oh. I'll my try rose. and think of a rose. Yeah, I really didn't like the shots from the book. I think it just, I know you said it was meant to kind of create a sense of claustrophobia, like they but were. It does always draw your attention to the artificiality of what you're watching. Yeah. Because it's, it's not a natural way of looking at anything. It is a highly stylized, filmatic device. And it pulls you out of that sense of uh, dis um, suspension of disbelief. Yeah. And it almost just kind of gave me vertigo on like a visceral level. Um, yeah, not a fan. I kind of think what my rose is, and that's not because I didn't like it. I agree with you that when he was like reading the book and you got to see those kind of charming elements of his personality, mm. that was probably the bit I enjoyed the most. But yeah, overall, I guess just having read another classic, that's always, yeah. like, I've never read any Christie, so I feel like I've, you know, achieved a culture point. Yeah, you can actually say you know what people are talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know who the murderer is now. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to just repeat what everybody else has said, but my rose is the whimsical Pyro. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed the character when I felt he could be a little you know, mercurial, little whimsical, little silly, mm. and kind of fun. Um, when he first meets Mary Debenham was like that, when they're sat on the bench, and he mm -hmm. starts revealing all these things he knows about, or he's like, mm. how would you know that? And he's like, oh, I read your ticket. And that kind of, <laughs> was quite a cute little scene. Yeah, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of that, and I think, that's, I think that's to be quite liked. It's a nice way to take the character. Mm. Um, my thorn is 100% the carry-on movie shots of them all leaving the train carriage basically attached to each other after they've just murdered the guy. Yeah. It, it's, it, it, it's so clumsy. Wait, uh, and then why is the mother left alone hiding in the room cleaning off the knife by herself? Because the uh, there's something about the connecting door. There's some reason why, even though the door's open, she needs to go back through the connecting door. <laughs> needs to lock it from one side to make it look like... Okay. No, you're right. Now you've raised it. I'm not quite sure. It didn't. It didn't feel. It didn't feel weird at the time. Well, it just didn't make sense because everyone goes out together at the end, and yeah. then why is she by herself with the knife? Everybody goes, does the conga out the door at the same <laughs> time, except her, who's left um, burning the note, ignoring the pipe cleaner, uh, cleaning the knife. And then going back into her room and then locking the door from her side, which she could have just done. Yeah, I don't oh, know. also, sorry to go back. We were finishing up. 
But where was the knife? Because he searched all the luggage and where was she hiding it to stab herself at the end? Good question. Mm. Good question. It was a pretty big knife. Unless it was in the Count's luggage, which they couldn't search because of the diplomatic... Uh, I thought he let them search no. it. Yeah, no, the, no the, guy, the guy says, we can't search the Count's luggage because of the diplomatic thing. He says, well, then the only other luggage we haven't looked at is my own. And then we go to the bit of him finding the kimono in his mm. um, bag. Uh, Do you guys remember? Because they get around that in the book that they search their luggage in the book. That the county. Anyway, yeah, they just say to them, "It will erase you from suspicion," and they're like, yeah. "No, then we must." Yeah. Um, so they do in the book search it. So yes, I was wondering where. I guess was the only place. So final question: Do you feel like it captures the essence? of the book slash what is Poirot as a character, this new Christie-verse? Mm, like 80% no. I think it was way more like action movie than it needed to be. And I think Poirot needs that kind of mm. charm that isn't quite so like sexy and <laughs> like, I know that sounds bad, but mm. no, 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 no. I agree. I mean, David, David Suchet's Poirot was very charming with the young ladies that he was talking to or whatever, not because it was sexy, but because he was sympathetic mm -hmm. uh, to their plight on a sort mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, not, not that he's been around, but that he understands how the world works. And he often understood what they were trying to say to him without it necessarily needing to be explicit and, and was sympathetic to, you know, their suffering. And that's very charming. And he didn't really need to do anything no. beyond yeah. that. But Suchet's Poirot is quite consistent, I feel. And that's why it's such a, you know, British cultural thing. Yeah. Um, people understand it because it, ha it has been so consistent. This, unfortunately, wasn't. It's got stuff we like. It's got stuff we didn't really understand. It's got stuff that felt shoehorned in. So yeah. This felt very much like the school as Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movies. Yeah, oh. definitely. Ugh. What a condemnation. <laughs> He said what? He said that. He said that. He said that. He said, well, then I went this. You went there. I went there. Ah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think and glamorous, I think. Um, I didn't take a look to see, actually, if they had listed any other of the films after this. Uh, no, just Death on the Nile. I think so. Definitely. I think they're probably all... On yeah. halt. <laughs> Until we... Everyone is on halt. Yeah, until we try and see if we make it through next year. Yeah, I just... It wasn't bad. It was just not... It, it just too much of... It, it. I think it had the potential to be something fun, but it had just... I could feel the interference of people's opinions and being like, oh, this is too boring. Um, have you watched a BBC murder mystery TV series? Yeah, do you think there were too many chefs in the kitchen? Do you think there yeah, were too many 100%. people pulling it in too many different ways? Yeah, I mean... I mean, Banner's game for it. He's, you know, clearly trying to make it his own and give it yeah. something. Well, but I think I, the first film think, did well, right? What do you mean the first film? Yeah, versus... And now there's the second one coming out. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So whether or not 
based on the fact the first film did well. I don't I don't know if it did well enough. I mean, this must have been an expensive oh. movie. Those those Great people. Spoilers, sorry for Death in the Nile. There is a screenshot where Branner is brandishing a pistol. It's all kicking off on Death in the Nile. <laughs> I want it, I want I want him like you know squaring up boxing. Yeah. <laughs> Like uh, whatever, whichever Guy Ritchie movie you care to quote, where the hero is <laughs> a boxer. Oh look, yeah. all of them. Um, I don't think it did well enough. It's it, it's a weird thing to make a sequel to, frankly. I mean, it was. It, what did it do, box office? Well, they, they were confident enough, weren't they? They set the sequel up at the end of this one. Like, yeah, clearly the studio is committed to trying to make this a franchise. But do you need all of those actors? It made 350 million worldwide gross. Not, I don't know. Those are expensive actors to get. Um, Uh, Apparently, the budget was only 55. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. It's very low. It it, it surprises me. I mean, bear in mind that's just somebody's estimate, doesn't necessarily have to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you have IMDb Pro. That doesn't matter. It's still, you know, not necessarily yeah. going to have the correct number. And it made um, thirty million opening weekend just domestic. So yeah, but, th- but 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 three hundred and fifty gross box office is what two hundred million back to the studio. So fifty five million budget, and then they've spent another thirty thirty million on marketing. I mean, yeah. profitable, but not the kind of profitable numbers that the studio is really looking at out of, out of a blockbuster. But Death in the Nile's got a much thinner cast in terms of big names, so maybe they're looking to save money that way. Gal Gadot. And Dawn French and Russell Brand. Oh, I I love Dawn French. What are you talking about? We don't love love Russell Brand. I I said I love Dawn French. Hopefully hopefully Russell Brand can be murdered. He could be the Johnny Depp character. I'd watch that movie. Are they going to cast a problematic male uh, actor for every film, though? Uh, what have they replaced him with in Harry Potter? I forget now. Well, thank you guys. That was really nice. I in, enjoyed that. Good for end of the year. Yeah. It was nice and short. I appreciated that. Yeah, I, still- like, I like last year's Little Women. Which- oh, no, I appreciated that too. Little Women was great. I mean, what are you talking about? We talked for the normal amount of time that we talk. I think they're referring to the length of the book. Oh, the book wasn't necessarily any shorter than, I mean, it wasn't Mary Queen yeah, of Scots. It felt like a really quick reading comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas for next month, Nora, or are we waiting to hear? So the problem is, obviously, there are no movies coming out. Yeah. And the only two real options... Because the only guarantees are, are like Netflix releases. So the one I know that's coming out is at the end of January is The White Tiger, the Diga book. Do you know that one? No, I'm not familiar. It's with um, Priyanka Chopra is the lead in it. Man Booker Prize. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a really good book. Yeah. Do you know it, Tom? I'm aware of it. No. And then the other one is at the end of December is that George Clooney film that we talked about before that we could do. Which one's that? The astronaut one, The Midnight Sky, I think it's called. Oh, the reviews are not good. Never mind. (laughs) Never 
You're just on a mission to inflict awful movies on people. I don't do it on purpose. <laughs> Never mind. Um, I try. I want us to do good movies. It's not my problem that Hollywood doesn't on make June. good movies. Yeah, I agree either. The White Tiger looks good. Tom, does that work for you? You're going to have yeah. time to read the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't have read the book. Oh my gosh. We've, he's read the book when we've done like comics. Yeah. Oh, God, the last one I remember you when, reading. When we do Thor, Love and Thunder, I'm all over it. Oh. I suppose we could read the comic it's based off of, but those are so very loosely based. I mean, it's very, very... Yeah. It's going to be tight. No. Jane, Jane, Foster, Jane, Jane Foster cancer storyline from Mighty Thor replaced the villain with Gore's God Butcher from God of Thunder. Boom. Uh, sure. July 22? So you, got a, you got a while. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I mean, Tom, if you know, keep your ear on the grounds if you do hear of any films coming out. I mean, be good who, to know. Who, what kind of crazy person would put a film out right now? <laughs> uh, or anything good that might be coming out on Netflix. Thank you. Thank you as always. Everyone. Thank you as always, Tom. Pleasure and a privilege. I, I have a happy Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Merry yeah. Merry yeah. Merry happy God, Hanukkah, God too. Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah. <laughs> Kwanzaa. 2021. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'll, I'll see you guys next year. No. Uh, Vegas? What? Vegas? What? It's about a poor driver. Oh, I said for a book about tigers, but apparently that's not the plot. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were saying after Nora said, I'll see you next year, you said in Vegas. I was like, wait. Oh, no, <laughs> oh wow. That'd be... Guys, I, this is very ambitious planning for 2021. <laughs> I know. I it's going to be better, but. That would be book club goes to Vegas, the road trip edition. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing. Okay, you're paying. You're paying, right, Nora? You're getting on plane. I'll I'll send my passport details. Thanks, Nora. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome.